stay at home and protect lives. That's the clear warning from the health secretary, Matt Hancock, who says it's not a request, but an instruction. I folks, quick update for me on the campaign against coronavirus. I want every American to be prepared for the hard days that lie ahead. Finding faster ways to test people who may have the virus. In the last few minutes, the UK's mass vaccination program against coronavirus has begun. Hello and welcome back to Corona Chronicles, SNS Online spin-off show that over the course of 2020 has documented the impact COVID-19 has had on both the UK and the rest of the world. We return triumphant in December, just in time for Christmas, with a vaccine, indeed a number of vaccines that have been signed off by the specific regulatory bodies around the world with the aim of inoculating as many people as possible and to help us all return to some semblance of normality. But how do these vaccines actually work and how do they compare with each other? Plus, with this new strain of COVID-19 that we're all hearing about, do scientists have additional concerns? Well, the Pfizer-BioNTech version has already started its rollout in the UK with the mRNA1273 kicking off a max vaccination programme in the USA. But what about our very own homegrown version, created by Oxford University with recent involvement by the pharmaceutical company AstraZeneca? Well, with me on the line is Dr. David Matthews, a virologist who's been working on the human coronavirus since 2015 and recently carried out independent research on the Oxford vaccine, which is due for rollout in the new year. Welcome to the programme, Dr. Matthews. Uh, In layman's terms, talk us through the evolution of the Oxford vaccine. Um, Well, these types of vaccines have been around for uh, a very long time now. I mean, the idea of taking these uh, relatively harmless common cold viruses, which are part of a group called the adenovirus group, uh, and genetically modifying them to to do interesting things that you want to do, uh, has been around for 30, 40 years. I mean, I made a vaccine against um, an experimental vaccine uh, against rabies uh, in the 1990s. Uh, which uh, in many ways is very similar to the design of the Oxford uh, one that that is uh, being rolled out today. So these types of vaccines have been studied for decades now. Um, And so I would would have imagined, um, you know, in my my chats with the Oxford team when we were setting up our research together, is that they probably would have designed uh, their version of the Oxford vaccine within a day of the... uh, coronavirus genetic sequences being released wow. <laughs> uh, and probably would have got, got going almost immediately. I mean, in, uh, you know, I've probably made in my time, I don't know, 40, 50 different genetically modified adenoviruses. And um, with modern techniques, it's, it's a matter of weeks before you would have a genetically modified virus in your hand and start growing it. Mm. Um, so I would imagine they would have had, um, the actual genetically modified virus itself, this this adenovirus that they're using as a vaccine, I'd imagine they'd have had it within, well, probably by the end of January. I would have I would have figured wow. uh, and and started their, you know, their analysis and their work up, and also starting to grow it up and and talking to people about the you know the logistics and the practicalities of it. How does it uh, essentially within a very short period of time? Yeah, how does it essentially work? Uh, so. 
these kinds of viruses, they're very straightforward to manipulate their, their genetic instructions um, for lots of technical reasons. Uh, and so what you what these viruses normally do is, is they, they uh, attach to cells in your body, they get inside the cell in your body, and then they get into the heart of uh, the cell in your body, an area called the nucleus, which is where your own genetic instructions are kept. Mm. And they deliver a package of their own genetic instructions, which basically are okay, uh, start making virus proteins, adenovirus proteins, and start copying these genetic instructions and make more of them and then stick the bunch together. And then after about 24 hours uh, to a day and a half, you get thousands and thousands of new viruses emerging. Mm. But what we found out about, oh, must be 40, 50 years ago now, was that there's when the virus delivers its genetic instructions, there's an initial burst of instructions from a region called E1, which just stands for early region 1. And if that bit is missing, if you remove that from this virus, then basically the whole thing just collapses after that. The virus can't replicate anymore, but it has still delivered genetic instructions. But it just, it's just the whole thing just doesn't get off the ground, its sure. own replication program. And so what we then discovered after that was, was that you can put those instructions on their own inside a human cell and make a sort of genetically modified human cell, if you like. And then if you've got viruses that are missing this region, this E1 or early 1 region, they will grow inside these special cells that have got the early 1 region already inside them. And they will replicate just fine inside those cells. Uh, but when they release and get out and try and go into a normal human cell, their replication program fails because mm. normal human cells don't have this early 1 region. But at the same time, they will have delivered whatever genetic instructions they're carrying along along with themselves. So yeah. that was the beginning, really. And then we realized you could put whatever set of genetic instructions you wanted uh, into these genetically modified adenoviruses. And then suddenly what you've got is a, a virus that can only replicate in special cells in the laboratory, can't replicate in human cells, so can't do any damage, but it is incredibly efficient at delivering whatever set of genetic instructions you choose to give it. And that's the whole basis of how these things work. And since then, people have been looking at all sorts of things you could try and do by delivering genetic instruction of your choice. So people have looked at, can you correct um, people who have inherited diseases, sure. who've got uh, problems wrong, or certain types of cancers could even be attacked by delivering special sets of genetic instructions. But I guess the biggest area that people have been working on recently is this idea of if you deliver the genetic instructions of a dangerous virus, such as Ebola or the new coronavirus, uh, you can basically have this genetically modified adenovirus deliver a set of instructions that a cell, a human cell, will then follow. And then that human cell will then just look to your immune system as if it's infected with whatever virus we choose. Uh, and that's the basis of these vaccines is that the adenovirus delivers these novel instructions, the cells in your body start to follow those instructions, and then that cell suddenly appears to your immune system as if it's infected with Ebola or with coronavirus or with um, you know, MERS coronaviruses or whatever yeah. thing you know we choose to put in there. I mean, it's an incredible achievement, but not one, but two, at least two vaccines. I think there's more as well have been produced, ready for use in less than uh, nine months. Uh, do you think that the whole scientific fields have evolved since the fight for COVID, and are we better prepared for another pandemic in the future? Well, I think we will be because I think all these um, these types of vaccines, such as the the Pfizer one. Uh, and the Moderna one, which I think is going to be licensed yeah. soon, as well as the Oxford vaccines, 
Uh, these are all vaccines that have been studied and looked at actually for quite some time in the scientific literature. You know, these are, they've not appeared out of a, a clear blue sky. We have, you know, people have been working on them before, but there's never really been the, you know, impetus quite like this yes. to get them into people uh, and get them through clinical trials as safely as you possibly can. Mm. Um, because in the past we've had the, the leisure of time, I guess, to, mm. you know, try all kinds of different vaccines. And actually, I think um, without this pressure, I think people would have still been much more attracted to older style vaccines, things that what's known as live attenuated vaccines and things like that, which are the ones that we've had around for 30, 40, 50 years or more. Mm. And people have just stuck with them, and they're great, but they take forever to develop and get just right and and pinpoint. And these newer vaccines, these newer types of vaccines, the the mRNA vaccine that Pfizer have and the uh, the Oxford uh, adenovirus type vaccines, they are much much faster. Um, but there's never been the impotence to actually, you know, fully test them and fully try them out and fully push them through, you know, a normal safety regimen. So I think in the future, yeah, I think these types of new vaccines, now that they've been tried in people and shown to be safe and effective and fast, um, then, yeah, they're going to change the way vaccines are done forever. Amazing. It just occurred to me that in the early days of the AIDS pandemic, which was initially affecting certain groups of people, there doesn't seem to be that pressure in the wider populace to um, resolve that and make that work. Do you think if the, if, um, the AIDS virus had come up and it was affecting equally everybody at the same time, we would have got to a better stage there significantly earlier? Um, to be honest, I don't think so, really. I think... Uh, and I, and I, I remember having these discussions, um, you know, in, in the nineties when I, when I, my career was starting as a virologist, mm. and uh, there was a lot of people who felt that um, development of treatment and vaccines against HIV was being delayed because people didn't care. Mm. Um, but actually, as a scientist, that wasn't the case. You know, okay. scientists were working actually quite hard. There was a huge amount of research money available to work on those problems. Mm. HIV is a particular. Uh, particularly difficult virus to deal with. And, and one of the reasons why it's particularly difficult is that in the whole history of HIV infections, if you don't have access to uh, drugs to control the infection, then you're almost certainly going to succumb to the virus eventually. Mm. Uh, and what that means is, is that of all the different people on this earth with all their different genetic makeups and all their different inheritances, whatever, of their genetic background no one's immune system has ever defeated this virus by itself, mm. uh, which means designing a vaccine that will uh, defeat uh, HIV and protect you from HIV is incredibly difficult because mm. we have literally no idea what an effective immune response would actually look like. Or not no idea, but we've got it makes it very hard to work out what a good vaccine would look like when actually infection with the real thing doesn't give you an immune response that's protective. Sure. Uh, all the other viruses or infectious diseases that uh, are out there for which we have vaccines like flu and like, uh, you know, measles and mumps and rubella, they're all for viruses that if you were to catch them ordinarily, a lot of people do recover. Not necessarily everybody, but a lot of people do recover yeah. and they become immune. And so you can study that and then think, right, okay, so these people... They all survived. They're all immune afterwards to one degree or another. What What is it about their immune response that works and protects them? So you can start from there and start to design a good vaccine. 
For HIV, there isn't that. So HIV is very unusual amongst viruses in that that we have no good vaccine, but we have a plethora of drugs. Mm. uh, Because in the absence of a vaccine, the research effort has had to turn to drugs. And traditionally, to control viruses, you would use vaccines and not drugs. Sure. Fascinating stuff. Can you explain the fundamental differences between the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine and and the Pfizer one? Okay, so in the Oxford AstraZeneca, uh, the Oxford AstraZeneca one, what you've got is a genetically modified, fairly harmless common cold virus from chimpanzees. Uh, it's had some of its genetic instructions stripped out to hobble it, so that it definitely can't cause any problems uh, in people. And so you then have to grow it in these special cells in a laboratory. It's had the genetic instructions put into it for the. Uh, coronavirus spike protein and then the virus delivers that into the heart of your cell into this area called the nucleus and it sits uh, alongside your own dna and then what happens then is is that uh, normally your own dna is not actually directly used uh, to make proteins from what happens is that the instructions that are on your dna are basically photocopied and this photocopy material uh, if you like these photocopied instructions are the ones that are actually used to make proteins mm. so when the uh, chimpanzee adenovirus delivers these instructions for the spike protein what happens is is that uh, that dna that the uh, adenovirus has delivered is photocopied thousands of thousands of times and the photocopies are then followed and it's those photocopies the photocopy of the instructions that are actually fed into these machines called ribosomes that turn instructions into proteins. And then the spike proteins then appear on the surface of the cell in your body and then trick your immune system into thinking that it's been infected with a coronavirus. Mm. What the Pfizer uh, vaccine does is it basically they make those photocopies artificially in the laboratory uh, and then they wrap them up in uh, lipids and then they inject them into your arm and then the photocopies are delivered into the cells in your arm and then the photocopies are followed directly by these machines called ribosomes that turn photocopied instructions into actual proteins. So they do the same job, but the chimpanzee adenovirus uh, is delivering a slightly different type of genetic material, which your body then photocopies to then have it turned into proteins, whereas the Pfizer and the Moderna one actually just artificially make those photocopies directly for you and then deliver those instead. So they're a similar approach, actually. So the fact that one of them works meant that you'd be pretty confident the other one was going to work because they were were giving you the same solution but from a slightly different step. I mean, if we were Um, making comparisons, how effective would we say is the Oxford vaccine compared to Pfizer's? Is that not fair? (laughs) um, It's a really hard one to answer, actually, because it depends what you mean uh, in, in terms of an effective vaccine um, I mean, for example, does, actually, does the vaccine give lifelong immunity? Well, uh, nobody knows that. Oh. Um, and we're not going to know that for a very long time, <laughs> I'm afraid. Uh, probably for months. Well, not for a very long time, but I would imagine within we'll, we'll know within six months to a year or so how, how effective and long-term these vaccines are going to be and whether sure. we might need to make new ones every year. Oh. In terms of which one is better than the other one, it, it, I think people are getting hung up on... Uh, statistics and press releases and things (laughs) the most important thing i thought um when i was looking at the data from uh, the oxford trials 
is that you know they they vaccinated several thousand people during their trials and they they also gave several thousand people uh, you know a placebo a fake you know a non-vaccine mm. and then waited to see how the two groups uh, got on over time which is what you have to do to be sure that these that these vaccines work and then the group that did not receive the vaccine um i think it was something like 10 people ended up being hospitalized with covid Mm. Um, whereas in the group that had had the vaccine, nobody ended up in hospital. Mm. And that is actually probably a more important endpoint at this stage in the fight against um, this virus mm. than, uh, you know, uh, the other measurements of effectiveness. So there are other measurements of effectiveness, which is you can ask the question, did anybody who got the vaccine ever actually catch COVID afterwards? Uh, and that's the one that's led to these sort of headline figures of, you know, is it 60%, is it 90%, yes. and which vaccine group were they in? Mm. And that is important to understand that, but probably for now, given how quickly we've got these vaccines together and, and how uh, difficult the situation is for everybody, actually the most important thing is is if you've had the vaccine, you're not going to go to hospital probably. Mm. And that means then you can relieve the pressure on hospitals. Absolutely. Um, it means people stop dying. Mm. The pressure on hospitals is eased. Um, and, and that's what we really need right now in the first instance. Absolutely. Uh, and I think both are going to be very good at that. Yeah. From all the data I've seen. Definitely. Was there ever a danger that the intense pressure and global expectation to get a vaccine out there as quickly as possible might have ever led to corners being cut in order to get the UK's regulator, the MHRA, to approve the work, making sure any future vaccine met the necessary efficacy and safety standards? Yeah, I think people, um, I get asked this a lot about the vaccines and that. I, 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 I'll put my hands up straight away. I don't do vaccine trials, but I obviously I work with people who do. And, I, you know, as I said, I've made myself genetically modified adenoviruses like this. I always think you should turn it the other way around because actually, you know, if you really wanted to cut corners, I could have been flogging a vaccine out the back of a van in Bristol uh, <laughs> by the end of February. <laughs> you know? All by myself. You know, I wouldn't even need somebody helping me. You know, I, I could have actually made my own uh, vaccine mm. uh, call, it a, call it a tonic uh, yeah exactly yeah, just <laughs> just be you know flogging it to people left right and center and saying oh don't worry i've made a load of vaccines before so mm. you know people worry about cutting corners you think well no 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 not really if you really want yeah. to cut corners this this vaccine could have been you know could have been on the streets by by the end of That's February, let alone mm. uh, now so i i don't I, I don't buy this idea that uh that the pressure has been so great that they've cut corners because what what benefit would that gain you? If well, you absolutely. cut corners, mm. you, you're, you're going to get caught up eventually anyway. Mm. Um, mm. I think what people don't realise is that normally when you do this work, you do a stage and then you wait for all the results to come in and then you make a decision commercially because these are, you know, big pharma companies are the only people who know how to do this kind of work, you mm. know, run clinical trials on this scale. So from their point of view, they will do a stage, they'll wait, wait to see how it's going, and then they'll decide whether or not to invest in the next stage. And at every point, that's a big decision for a, for a pharma company because it costs millions. Yeah? Mm. Uh, and so they're always going to wait for each step to finish before thinking about the next step. Sure. Whereas in this situation, um, I mean, I don't know whether they've been promised or underwritten by the government or whatever, whether they've just taken the risk. Uh, they basically said, OK, let's just assume everything goes swimming. Mm. 
let's start all the various parts of this process now, now, now. Let's get all our paperwork ready so that there is no delay between each of the individual steps at all whatsoever. We'll just assume and keep our fingers and toes crossed that every stage will go well and and get the next stage ready to go the next day. Mm. Um, And that's been the big difference. And there's even suggestions now that, you know, it could even have be it could even have gone faster. Gosh, really? You know, yeah. That's I mean, amazing. you know, and be safe at the same time. That's amazing. Um, so, I think, I think from, from from a you know a non scientific viewpoint, just from the man on the street, you know, the fact that the vaccine has been produced so quickly. I mean, I sort of imagined it would be a good few years before anything would kick off. I mean, it's been it's almost like we've been given the present tied in a nice neat bow by the end of the year. Which is great. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. Um, but I, I, I do think people's perception of the dangers here is is needs to be put in the wider context. You know, I, I certainly, I was, I was reading an article the other day, and I can't, I can't for the life of me remember who wrote it, but it was, it was somebody who's a, a bigger expert on vaccine safety than I am. Mm. Uh, and they said, you know, the idea is this safe? He said, it, it said it's it's not about safety; it's about risks. Yeah. yeah, nothing is safe. Mm. You know, e- eating food isn't safe. You know, you could find out you're allergic to something one day and have a, a reaction to that and have sure. an anaphylactic shock. And do you know what I mean? So, yeah. or you could choke on a chicken bone or something. So mm. even eating food is not safe. Yes. Um, the question is the relative risk. Mm. Um, what kind of risk are you prepared to take? Um, because all vaccines, all uh, drugs, paracetamol, ibuprofen, they all have risks with them. There's all, you know, a, a finite risk issue. Uh, the question is about, you know, the relative dangers and the relative risks. And he said, and, you know, this has been done for many, many years now. So the, the regulators like the MHRA, like the FDA in America, they understand, you know, what a vaccine needs to be able to do and how safe it needs to be for it to be acceptable. And they set very high standards. So. Mm. Which is good I to know. I don't see that changing. That's good to know. Uh, we've been hearing about a new strain of the virus for the start of the spread in the UK. Um, should we be additionally concerned about this? And will both Pfizer and Oxford vaccines protect us from new mutant strains in the future? It's an interesting one. And I think the long and short of it is, is that we really won't know uh, for a little while yet whether mm. or not we need to be concerned about these mutations because in order to test and see whether these individual mutations affect how well the uh, the vaccine protects us uh, takes time, I'm afraid. Uh, mm. And the virus has been changing. You know, it, it's not changing that rapidly, but it is changing over time, as we would expect it to as virologists, because, you know, it has jumped newly into humans and, uh, you know, it's made a good living so far. But there's always uh, room for improvement as far as the virus is concerned. Mm. Um and those improvements will come over time. Um, the, the question about whether or not these naturally arising mutations as the virus adapts to us more fully uh, will be a problem in terms of vaccines is, is one that's almost impossible to answer right now, really. We're going to have to wait and see because your immune system doesn't attack just one tiny part of the virus. It's, it's quite a broad front that it will attack, even though the vaccines only show the immune system one part of the coronavirus. Your immune system's response to that will be fairly broad-based. So the odd mutation here and there may not be as important Mm. as we think. I think the bigger test will come is when we've vaccinated lots of people and then suddenly the virus is trying to spread in a world where lots of people have had the vaccine. 
uh, and that could put evolutionary pressure on this virus uh, to have to maybe select for more dramatic changes mm. uh, so that it can evade our pre-existing immune responses because we've all been vaccinated and that how that pans out is either not necessarily disastrous you know it could be that uh, in an attempt to evolve around, you know, the whole world's been vaccinated now, and in an attempt to evolve around that, is that we end up with a virus that is uh, a nuisance, but not not lethal like it is now. So mm. it's, you know, it, there are lots and lots of unknowns here. Yeah. Um, and just because there are unknowns doesn't mean to say it's catastrophic or bad or horrendous. No, not at all. But there are lots of unknowns. So finally, do you think by the middle of next year, pretty well everybody in the world would have been vaccinated with one of the vaccines? By the middle of uh, 2021, I seriously doubt that. No. Um, I seriously doubt we'll have vaccinated the whole of the UK by then. Gosh. Uh, even. When do you think uh, it will be it, done? Um, I, that's... That's really hard to tell as well. Uh, I mean, it depends. It depends on the rate at which we can obviously get the vaccine out, and also it depends on what the virus does when suddenly lots and lots of people are vaccinated. Hmm. Um, but assuming it all goes reasonably well, I would have imagined that uh, yeah, by you know, May June, life will be returning to more or less normal. And I would certainly have thought by uh, October November here in the UK, life will be returning to normal. As to what will happen across the world, that's very difficult to know because yeah, sure. many countries, not only will, do they not have the infrastructure to um, vaccinate at speed and at scale like we do, um, but also a lot of countries may not be able to vaccinate at all. And while, while their populations are not vaccinated, um, the virus will be spreading mm. through their populations and possibly mutating and acquiring mm. you know, new mutations, which may or may not mean we have to, you know, generate a new vaccine hmm. if not every year then maybe every other year yeah well fingers crossed it'll all go well dr david matthews thank you so much for joining me on corona chronicles thank you thank you very much dr david matthews there well that's it for this edition if you want to email us about anything at all then the email address is corona chronicles show at gmail.com until next time this is nate randall saying Stay safe and keep wearing a mask because it's not quite over yet. Oh, and happy Christmas. Goodbye. Goodbye.